welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I am not a priest, and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who had a plate of poke nachos with a priest friend the other day. And I definitely did not. I am not sure I've ever had a conversation with a priest in real life, as a matter of fact, and that's why we have this show. I mean, it'll happen eventually. It has to happen eventually, but at this point, I've still never socialized with a priest, both, you know, in a religious context or in a social context, and it kind of freaks me out. Part of me wants to see, like, how long we can keep that going, but also part of me could make it just happen. I, if anyone <laughs> in the world could make it happen, it would be you, who could just have people over for dinner and invite a priest and then probably not tell me until the end that one of them was a priest just to freak me out. That's true. Yeah, they don't all just, like, wear their collar. I figured that they must not sometimes, <laughs> and then you don't know whether or not they're priests. Oh, man. It's like they're undercover. Oh, my God. I'm not scared of priests. I'm just scared <laughs> of not knowing what to say around priests. I mean, they're just guys. Guys who've dedicated their lives to God. I mean, I'm, like, halfway there. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> all right. What are we talking about this week, Brian? So this week, we're going to talk about the prosperity gospel. Ooh, I sort of know what that means, but it does not mean anything good. Um, Well, you know, some people think it does. (laughs) I'm sure there are people that do, and that's why it still exists. (laughs) Oh, and boy, does it exist. It's, man, it's everywhere. I can imagine. How do you pronounce Uh, that guy's last name? The terrible guy from Texas. Oh, uh, Joel Osteen. Osteen. Uh, we'll get to him. I'm sure. But that's uh, what I think of when I think of the prosperity gospel is his, like, weird shaggy hair. Is it shaggy? I always thought he was, like, very well groomed. Maybe, but it's, like, coiffed, I guess. Okay, yeah, knows. yeah. He's very well coiffed. It's, fl- it's fluffed. Yes, fluffed uh, is maybe the better description. So, for anyone who doesn't know... Prosperity gospel is basically the idea that God wants us to be happy and successful, and that if you believe in God and do and say the right things, you'll have everything you want, including material wealth, which is where a lot of the focus ends up getting placed. Which is why they call it the prosperity gospel, right? Exactly. So, how did we get to what the modern prosperity gospel is today. Uh, It started with the New Thought Movement, which is usually considered to have started in the mid-1800s by a dude named Phineas B. Quimbley. Wait, that's the best name. Isn't it a good name? That sounds like (laughs) the name of someone who signed the Declaration of Independence or someone who a sci-fi movie wants you to believe signed the Declaration of Independence. Ooh. Yeah, I, I get that. Phineas uh, B. Quimbley? B. Oh my god. So he was a spiritual healer from Maine. And he was also a practicer of mesmerism. Ooh, I listened to a podcast sometime recently about mesmerism and how crazy that was. You want to explain, like, briefly what mesmerism is? If I can, I'm really bad at describing things when I'm put on the spot. Uh, mesmerism was a movement started by Franz Mesmer, who had a theory that there was, like, a fluid in our body that could be controlled by animal magnetism, and that you could, through touching and gazing and all sorts of things, control this fluid to help heal you. Yeah, pretty much. 
craziness. Uh, later, it ended up kind of blending into hypnotism, though. Yeah, and that's where we get the word mesmerized, right? Exactly, yeah. This guy, follower of Mesmer, he believed that illness was a matter of the mind and could be fixed uh, by thinking, visualizing, and speaking the right words. So he got this idea because one day he fell off his horse and he had to run behind it to catch up to it. And he realized that the running temporarily eased his tuberculosis symptoms. His idea that he got from this is, oh, I can overcome disease by not thinking about it. Wait, he had tuberculosis? He did, yes. I guess he was probably at a time where everyone had tuberculosis. Yeah, uh, mid-1800s. Yeah, yeah. they hadn't figured out what shock and or adrenaline were yet. Um, no. (laughs) Clearly not. (laughs) This guy himself was not particularly religious, but he kind of believed that he had tapped into the same methods that Jesus used to heal people. Okay, so that's where we come back to Christianity. Is this... This must be what Jesus did. Kind of, yeah. And it was it was kind of just an afterthought, the religious part of it. Mostly it was just, if you think hard enough, you can heal things. Okay. So one of his followers really, really took this into Christianity. She never quite got to prosperity gospel. Okay. Um, her name was uh, Mary Baker Eddy. And she later went on to found the Christian Scientists. Okay, that's why her name sounds familiar. I knew that that name sounded familiar, but I couldn't remember if it was, you know, famous suffragettes. Lots of those ladies had three names. Yeah, no, not a suffragette. I Uh, listened to a lot of feminist (laughs) in history class, which comes up with a lot of ladies with three names. That's fair. Mary Baker Eddy, she kind of just denied the physical world entirely and said that you could heal everything by... Faith and like the spiritual world was what was real. All right, this is another episode that officially already needs a flowchart. Probably. Mary Baker Eddy, she denied that Quimbley had any impact on her ideas and kind of like disassociated herself from him. So she's off on her own branch. Okay, so we've, we've branched off into a side yeah. over there that is Christian science. We go past her. The next person in the line of new thought movement is we get to Warren F. Evans. Okay. There are lots of middle initials here. We sound like very it. official. Very official. <laughs> uh, now, did Warren F. Evans know Phineas B. Quimbley? He did. Okay. He traveled to be cured by Quimbley. Okay. Evans was a Methodist minister who became a Swedenborgian. Oh, we talked about Swedenborgians last week. We did. And it makes sense that he became a Swedenborgian and then moved to this line of thinking, this new thought movement, because the Swedenborgians believed in a strong connection between the physical and spiritual worlds. Okay. So you could believe that the spiritual things impact your physical health. He went on to write six books about Quimbley's ideas, and he opened up the Mind Cure Sanatorium in Salisbury, Massachusetts. Oh my god, the Mind Cure. Which I just love the name. (laughs) The Mind Cure should also be the name of some sort of, like, New Age video series. I mean, it probably is. Yeah. (laughs) So he opened a sanatorium where people thought really hard to fix themselves? Exactly. Okay. Next guy, more initials. I'm I'm ready. We get into E.W. Kenyon. All right, E.W. Kenyon. I'm actually writing notes this week. Um, I know. I I can see. In front of me, Shannon has a flowchart of all of these fun names. There are (laughs) many arrows on you. All right, so E.W. Kenyon. Like Kenyon the college? Maybe. Okay, that's just... We're free associating at this point. 
I mean, I didn't, I didn't look up that particular connection. All right. There's a lot of history on all of this. Yeah. But now that I think about it, a lot of the show is really just you saying things and then me free associating whatever comes into my mind. And we see how often I'm correct. And I usually don't check. (laughs) Sometimes I'm right. Sometimes we get Brian's signature. Sure. Yeah. That's a, that's a sheriff moment. Like I, I believe it. I believe Kenyon College is named after this guy. All right. So what did EW Kenyon do? He did definitely found the Bethel Bible Institute. Okay. And he agreed with the idea of speaking things into being, but didn't think the New Thought Movement was doing it right. Because basically they were saying things like, I am well, I am happy. So like, yeah, kind of new agey. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, is the secret going to show up in the show at some point today? Because if it isn't, it should. I don't talk about it in this, but it totally could. It fits... Very much within this line of thinking. Yeah, this is right right up there. Okay, so the Bethel Bible Institute, they didn't believe the I am wealthy, I am happy thing? No, he thought you should say, God's strength is mine, God's health is mine, God's success is mine. Okay, so we're pulling straight from God into ourselves. Yeah, we're getting more religious, which is the biggest difference. Okay. The new thought movement gets more new agey as we go, and then certain offshoots go more Christian as we go. Yeah, generally the new thought movement itself is not particularly religious. Yeah. But people kind of co-opt the ideas. And E.W. Kenyon is kind of seen as the bridge that leads us into the religious aspect of it. Cool. So the Bethel Bible Institute exists, and they're all trying to draw their good traits from God directly. Yeah. One of his biblical basis for this is in the beginning of the Gospel of John, the first line is, in the beginning there was the word. Okay. Um, And the word, people generally say, uh, refers to Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is the word? Jesus is the word. But his thing was just, he focused on, like, the actual text that the word is the most important thing. So what you say is what matters. Exactly. Got it. And that was Kenyon's thing. Yeah. He also said that when people become sanctified and become Christians, they become something more than human, almost equal with angels, and they can tap into the power of this word. This sounds like more perfect baptism all over again. He's even more perfect than, like, the most perfect people. Like, you're, like, a demigod at this point. And what do you have to do to become a demigod? You become sanctified. So you you get baptized and then okay. become a Christian. So by being a Christian, you are elevating yourself above the common man to the level of the demigods. Pretty much. He said that because of this, Christians should not just ask, but they should demand things in prayer. Because he believed there was a binding contract between God and Christians that God had to answer prayers if they were asked for correctly in the name of Jesus. And the correct way to ask for things is to demand them. Yes. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. That's the important part. In the name of Jesus, I want one million dollars. Pretty much, yeah. Kenyon says, you get it, I guess. And some way, God will give you one million dollars. But he was also still not talking explicitly about money. He was mostly talking about, like, health and well-being and, like, spiritual things more than... Material possessions. So in the name of Jesus, I don't want to die of consumption? Yeah. That makes more sense. I think that's probably about where he was at. And about as reasonable as asking for a million dollars. Just saying. I mean, especially, you know, late 1800s. Exactly. (laughs) So then the, uh, the Pentecostal church, which is a much larger movement, 
jumps onto these ideas. The Pentecostal movement's a revival movement that believed in a direct connection to Jesus, baptism in the spirit, healing through God, and the resurrection. Those were like their main things. Why it's important is they believed in physical manifestations of faith. So if you have faith, there's real world physical consequences of it, like speaking in tongues or like a preacher can push you to the ground. Yeah, so we talked about tongues a little bit. Um, when we're talking about confirmation, but this is really where speaking in tongues happens. Is this like, your faith is shown not by you mysteriously speaking a language with other people speak, but by you speaking something entirely different. Yeah, this is the, the speaking the language of the angels, which is something that is indecipherable in any right. human language. This is like, people fall over and ride on the floor stuff? Yeah, for sure. Great. So physical manifestations. So like those, these are the kind of the two branches that start to come together is the idea that words can do things in the real world and there are physical uh, manifestations of faith. Okay. And those are like the two. So we're grounding back into the here and now with all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So then we're jumping forward a little bit to the 1950s. Okay. And we get to Norman Vincent Peale. So many three named dudes today. Yeah, uh, he's the last one. Okay. Everyone else just has two names. (laughs) Norman Vincent Peale. He wrote a book in 1952 called The Power of Positive Thinking. All right, that sounds sort of familiar, but I don't know if it's the book or just, like, people co-opting it. Probably a little of both. Yeah. But, like, very, very famous book. Mm. Um, And the message in this is pretty similar to what we've been saying, that together you and God can do anything. Okay, so The Power of Positive Thinking was a text about religion and how this applies to religion as opposed to a more secular idea. It's not super religious, but it it is written by a preacher and there is God in it, but it's really kind of a self-help book. But it's a religious self-help book as opposed to a secular self-help book. For sure, yeah. Okay. And it starts to move away from the idea that God just wants us to be healthy and it applies it to anything we want. God will help us with anything we want. Okay, so we're broadening away from not dying of consumption. And this is where we get into more financial, physical, career, family, etc., etc. Yeah, definitely. Uh, And what uh, Norman said himself is that he wanted you to focus on imaging, which was vividly picturing in your conscious mind desired goal or objective and holding that image until it sinks into your unconscious mind where it releases great untapped energies. All right, that's the secret. Kind of. I'm pretty sure that's (laughs) just the secret. But you know, he was even more popular than the secret, I think. Is that possible? He had a successful radio and television show. Okay. He got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Reagan in 1984. Oh my god. And on a Very modern note, one of his parishioners at Marble Collegiate Church was future president Donald Trump. Oh boy. This is one of the guys that is foundational to the way that Trump thinks about religion. Okay, interesting. Well, that's good to know, I guess. Just an interesting note. (laughs) If you imagine things, they will go into your subconscious and somehow their God will know how to give them to you. Like, I get, if I ask things from God, God will give them to me. And I get, if I subconsciously convince myself I am worthy of this thing, I can go for it. And I don't know how to connect those two. I have another quote from him. Uh, It says, it works best when it's combined with a strong religious faith backed by prayer. 
and the seemingly illogical technique of giving thanks for benefits before they are received. When the imaging concept is applied steadily and systematically, it solves problems, strengthens personalities, improves health, and greatly enhances the chances for success in any kind of endeavor. Okay, so by imagining really hard, but also believing in God, you're capable of more things. Basically. That's okay. his whole thing. This is the last step before, like, actual prosperity gospel. Alright, is this 1950s Norman Vincent Peale power of positive thinking situation? Yeah. So, kind of at the same time, but also extending later, is mm-hmm. Oral Roberts. Okay, that's a name I recognize. So, he was a Pentecostal preacher, and in 1947, when he was 29, he dropped his Bible, and it fell open to a passage in the third epistle of John that said, I wish above all things that thou may, mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. So he took this as a sign from God, he bought a Buick, and he went on the road to save people. Amazing. <laughs> I really, really wish that his Bible had fallen open to a verse in Paul. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Who, who knows where he would have been today? All right, so... <laughs> John says, we wish you to be prosperous and to spread the word. And so he buys a Buick and hits the road. Yeah. and Message uh, from God guy. And so Oral Roberts was became one of the first televangelists. He started on radio, but he moved to TV. Uh, and he invented the concept of seed faith. Okay, what on earth is that? Seed faith is the idea that you show your faith with a donation to the church. And in return... God will multiply that donation and return it to you in some way. All right, so here's where the money comes in. Mm-hmm. This is where things get maybe a little sketchy. Maybe. Where some people would <laughs> argue that things get a little bit sketchy. I'm trying to not be too judgmental. <laughs> All right. And I'm going to try not to let my outside influences color the story you're telling. But so things have been said about prosperity gospel that involve their feelings on donating money to church, and this is the origin of that feeling on donating money to church. Yeah. As Oral Roberts once said, solve your money needs with money seeds. (laughs) I really appreciate the rhyme. I really appreciate the rhyme. I don't know if I can say anything else. (laughs) You know, it worked for him. Oh, (laughs) I'm sure it did. He earned a lot of money. At its height in 1988, his organization made $88 million. Wow. And he also now, he still has a university named after him. And oh, yeah. He's not alive, though, right? No, I, I believe he died in the 90s. Okay. Yeah, there's like a super conservative Christian university named after him, right? Yeah. And a bunch of other things, I'm sure? Uh, probably other things, but Oral Roberts University is definitely a place... Okay, and does he use the term prosperity gospel? I don't know that really any of them use it themselves. Okay, it's sort of a outside group way to group a bunch of people together. Yeah. So there was a contemporary of Or Roberts, uh, Kenneth Hagen, and okay. he called his own thing the Word of Faith Doctrine. Okay. Which was basically just that a Christian with faith can speak anything into being if it is consistent with the Word of God. So if it's consistent with God, you can make it happen. Yeah, just by speaking it. They would say things like word of faith, or Kenyon, I think, just called his faith. Faith is... With with a, with a capital F, faith. Correct. <laughs> the faith doctrine. The faith doctrine. Which I guess if you're earlier on, I don't know, you can get away with stuff. You can get away with capitalizing common nouns. Yeah. 
Um, which we had a little bit of that last week with Catholic and Catholic. That's true. I also realized that in my notes I've been writing God both big G and little G sort of simultaneously. Ooh. Um, because I don't have strong feelings about which way that word is capitalized. <laughs> um, I think I might take a photo of these notes and when we release the episode, tweet them out. So if anyone wants to see what my ridiculous prosperity gospel flowchart looks like, we'll tweet out a version of my notes and you can all judge me on my really bad handwriting. I like it. And then we can psychoanalyze why you use big G and little G God. Yeah, I caught myself <laughs> using little G God somewhere on this page, but there's a lot of big G God in That's here funny. too. <laughs> it's just weird. Uh, okay, so now we've hit our well-coiffed friend, Joel Osteen. Okay, so he comes in sometime after Oral Roberts. Yeah. But in the Oral Roberts tradition. Yes. He's still around today. Yeah. He's the preacher at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, that has a weekly attendance of 52,000. That's so many people. That's why they. That's why you see the big screens and the microphones and the yeah. theatrical lighting, because there's so many people. So are most megachurches, as we think of megachurches, prosperity gospel churches, or are they mostly just sort of like generic evangelical churches? Um, I couldn't tell you exactly how many are specifically prosperity gospel, but megachurches are generally evangelical. Yeah. I grew up in Colorado, and Colorado Springs, Colorado, is sort of the hotbed of the megachurch. There are many megachurches there. But also, like, for reference, for something to be classified as a megachurch, it only has to have a weekly attendance of over a thousand. Really? Yeah. So 52,000 is a lot. That's a ultra megachurch. Yeah. I don't know what the next step up is, but it is that, know. whatever it is. But Osteen's preaching style is all about positive confession. Okay. He'll do things like hold up a Bible and say, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. I boldly confess that my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. So as opposed to saying, I confess that I am a sinner, you're saying, I confess that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, or whatever the bit is. Yeah, you're you're saying, like, things that you want to be true, you're stating that they are true. Great. There's no no emphasis on the, the sin and the negative. Okay, so it goes back a little bit to the new thought, like, I am healthy, I am wealthy. Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, they, they call what he does uh, soft prosperity. As opposed to Oral Roberts was hard prosperity, where it was very much about money, money, money. So Oral Roberts preached a pretty financially forward doctrine, whereas Joel Osteen is a little bit more holistic in his preaching? Yeah, he teaches about blessings and living your best life. And more general wealth instead of give me money and you'll get money back, saying that directly. That's kind of gone out of vogue since the 80s. But, you know, that being said, Joel Osteen is... Definitely living his best life. He's worth about $60 million and has a 17,000 square foot house. That's a large house. Yeah. And, you know, probably wouldn't have let anybody recovering from a flood into his house either. He got in some trouble for not letting people in during the flooding in Houston into the church, right? Yeah, he did. <laughs> well, okay. You reap what you sow, I guess, Jill. But do they require a financial contribution to attend this 52,000-person church? Or is it more like you don't have to put in money, but you're going to get it back better if you do? I think it's more the second one. It's a little... It's not, there's no demand. It's more of a... 
subtler requests. And I think there's probably some shaming if you don't donate. Oh, I'm sure. But yeah, no requirements, just like you should. If you have faith, you would. I don't know if there are any specific Christian denominations, but there are faiths in the world that require, or maybe more like cults in the world, that require a specific portion of your income to be donated or encourage you to live only off of a certain percentage of your income and give the rest to the church or to charities or to the poor or whoever. But it doesn't sound like prosperity gospel actually goes that far. Yeah, I think that there there are definitely some churches that require you to tithe, Mm -hmm. which is uh, giving 10% of your income to the church. So tithing is specifically tied to that 10% number? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. In its traditional meaning, yeah. But I think more recently people kind of think of it as just a donation to your church. Yeah, and I thought that was sort of my association with that word was more of a general, you donate something. Yeah. And then I, I've heard of other churches. I haven't heard of it as a recent thing, but I know in the past there was like a an amount of money you would donate to your church to like reserve your seat in your pew. Oh, interesting. That's more like I've heard of that happening like a hundred years ago. That makes more sense. Yeah, and there's not just Joel Osteen. There's plenty of other mm-hmm. prosperity gospel preachers. There's uh, Kenneth Copeland, Eddie Long, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, was another one of Donald Trump's favorites. Okay. And these ideas aren't just in the United States. They've been spreading internationally. Like uh, in Lagos, there are four prosperity megachurches with at least 30,000 people each. That's a lot for one city in Nigeria. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. That's Uh, crazy. Are there other countries that... Prosperity Gospel has really taken off. Uh, In Singapore, there's the New Creation Church, which is also 30,000 people. And in Brazil, there is a uh, 12,000-seat church that is built to look like Solomon's Temple. Whoa. That's a dedication to decadence that I was not emotionally prepared for. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So people all over the world love this because it's wealth-affirming, so it makes rich people feel better about how much money they have. And it on the other end of the spectrum, it offers hope and the chance of a way out for of poverty for people who are not as rich. I can see the allure there. The people who are maybe not on super firm financial footing but have a lot of faith, feeling like maybe their faith is the solution to their financial problems and being able to turn to their church and to their God, not as a, hey, can you help me out in this hard time, but as a, hey, can you affirm that I'm worthy of being helped? I definitely can see why people would be drawn to that. Yeah, so it's it's definitely, it's an inspiring thing, but it also is sometimes a predatory thing mm-hmm. with concepts like seed money. Because, yeah, that feels like sort of icky in this, you're not going to get anything good unless you have the money already to donate and if you don't have that money, then what happens to you and your faith? That doesn't feel like a good association. Right. And it also sometimes works kind of backwards, where if you are poor, people assume it's because you've done something wrong. Ooh, yeah. I don't like that at all. And so I, so wealth would, would, on the other hand, be a sign that you are a good person. Which I'm sure people with a lot of money really like that idea because it affirms their place in their social structure. Normally, I have some bit of a Bible passage in here to back up whatever topic I'm talking about. The one that I was able to find for this one is 
the parable of the talents in Matthew that gets used by a lot of people to back up prosperity theology. A talent is a sum of money somewhere between $1,000 and 20 years of wages for a common laborer. That's a really big range. <laughs> I don't know more specific than that. And it's spelled how? Exactly. Like, like talent? Like the word talent. That's kind of where we get the word talent. Okay. Is this same thing. So this guy was going on a journey, and he left money in the care of his slaves. He gives five talents to the first guy, mm-hmm. two talents to the second guy, and one talent to the third. All right. The first guy went off, and he traded, and he made five more. Okay, so he doubles his investment. Yeah. And the second guy went off, and he traded, and he made two more. So he doubles his investment. The last guy dug a hole and hit his. Okay, so he ends up with one. Yeah, so he still has one. Master comes back. Servants show him what they've done. He told the first two, good job, because you are trustworthy in small matters. Relatively. These are like millions of dollars. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I will make you trustworthy in large ones. Now come celebrate with me. Okay. He got to the third one, who said, Sorry, I knew you were, you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I got scared and I hid my talent. The master called him wicked and lazy. He said, You knew I wanted more, so why didn't you at least put it in the bank so it would get interest? So he took that talent from the dude and he gave it to the dude with ten and said that to those who have, more will be given, and to those who have nothing, what little they have will be taken away. And then he said to throw the dude without any money out into the darkness, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Oof. That's harsh. Yeah. So, and this is New Testament God. New Testament God is next God, isn't he? Yeah. And also, New Testament God is kind of the only one that evangelicals like to pay attention to because the focus is on Jesus. Interesting. Okay. Well, then I guess it makes sense that they like this New Testament story about rich people getting more money. Yeah, so this is one of the Bible passages that gets used uh, because people think that if God wants you to be wealthy and you have to work for it. And if you don't have money, it's because you don't deserve God's blessing. On the other hand, this parable is placed in the middle of a longer discussion about the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, maybe it's not about material wealth. Yeah. Maybe it's about... Using the gifts, or the way we use talents now. Yeah, as a less financial meeting. <laughs> so, that's as preachy as I'm going to get on this. Alright, uh, that's fair. <laughs> but it's good to know that somebody is pulling something from the Bible in this idea, and not just, I dropped a Bible once and it opened this, and so I bought a book and hit the road. Although, like, great origin story. <laughs> I do like that origin story. But it is not super theologically based as much as it is super spiritually based. Yeah. And so it's interesting to see where the more theological places are yeah. in this story. And there are other small ones, but there are also a lot of big things in the Bible where Jesus literally flips tables because he's mad at people for doing business in a church. <laughs> oh boy. So it's complicated. Um, it's... We, Maybe not the most theologically sound. <laughs> I think if we've learned anything, it's that Christianity contains multitudes. Very true. And I think on that note, let's take a break. And when we come back, it'll be time for... The Patronage Pop Quiz. All right. And we're back. Before we move on to the Patronage Pop Quiz... I wanted to add one more note about the prosperity gospel. If anybody thinks this is interesting and wants to learn more, uh, look up Catherine Bowler. She wrote her dissertation on the history of prosperity gospel at Duke. 
and she knows way more about this than I do, and it's very interesting. Great. Shout out to Catherine Bolter at Duke for your awesome work. If I can find her on Twitter, we'll tweet at her. Oh, yeah. She'll maybe be interested, maybe be offended by how we represented this. Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Only one way to find out. But anyway, now it is time for the Patronage Pop Quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint, and she has to guess what they're the patron of. And I'm not very good at this, but I sometimes have better ideas than the list of things they're patrons of. Who do we got this week? So we're a little political this week, so I went with a little political saint. Uh, St. Thomas More. That name sounds familiar from, like, European history class. Oh, it totally should. Great. <laughs> like I said, association. <laughs> we're back in free association territory here. I didn't know Thomas More was a saint. He was. So this is mostly just a European history lesson, but here we go. I'm ready. Born February 7th in 1478 in London. His father was Sir John Moore, a lawyer and judge who rose to prominence during the reign of Edward IV. His dad's connections helped him get into one of the best schools in London, and then he later became the page to John Morton, the Archbishop of Canterbury and Lord Chancellor of England. He studied at Oxford and then became a lawyer in 1502. He considered becoming a monk because he admired their simple piety, but he decided against it later. He was a very gifted writer. His most famous work was Utopia, where he actually invented that word. That's where he sounds familiar from. He also will continue to be important. Okay. On a more personal note, he was married twice, the second time just months after his first wife died, causing some gossip, but he said that this was just so his children would have a mother. Okay. And here we come back into politics. He later became a trusted ally of King Henry VIII. Oh, so the divide happens under Thomas More's rule. Yeah. But he goes Catholic? He does. Interesting. So Henry knighted him and eventually promoted him to the rank of Lord Chancellor. During his tenure, he fought heresy and defended the Catholic faith throughout England, which was awesome until Thomas refused to sign a letter from Henry to the Pope requesting an annulment from his wife, Catherine. Thomas resigned and refused to attend the coronation of Anne Boleyn, but instead wrote a letter of congratulations. This was not enough for Henry. He was still offended and tried to have Thomas arrested for taking bribes, which was not a real thing. Um, And there was no evidence to convict him because he was just such a good dude and everyone liked him. Wow. It was only when he failed to take an oath accepting Henry as the head of the church that he was sentenced to be... Hanged, drawn, and quartered for treason. The king really liked him, like everyone else, and felt bad, so he just had him decapitated. Great. We saved him the drawing (laughs) and the quartering. Yeah. Uh, His last words were, the king's good servant, but God's first. And then he was martyred. He was buried in the chapel of St. Peter at the Tower of London, but his skull is in a vault of a church in Canterbury. Oh, boy. So, Shannon, what... Is Thomas More the patron saint of? All right, I have an idea. Knowing my record, it's going to be wrong. But is he the patron saint of marriage? Uh, difficult marriages. Sure, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> so close enough. Ooh, I finally got one, sort of. Uh, saint Sir Thomas More. He was. Or Sir Saint. I don't know. That's a good question. (laughs) Uh, 
was the patron saint of adopted children, Arlington, Virginia, civil servants, court clerks, difficult marriages, large families, lawyers, politicians, uh, statesmen, step-parents, and widowers. Okay. Those all actually all totally make sense. And I should have guessed politicians. I realized that I was totally missing the obvious one there. But I'm glad that I got it with marriage. And I think that's it. Yeah, I uh, I think that's all we have today. You want to say thanks to some people and tell them where to find us? Yeah. Special thanks to Adam Griffin for our awesome theme music. Thanks to his brother, David Griffin, for editing and for our logo. And I thought of a cool thing to say about David this week, and I totally forgot what it was. I have one. Great. David went to an Opus Dei high school, which is a weird Catholic thing. Oh, right. <laughs> we'll talk about Opus Deis on this podcast sometime, probably when David's in town, so that we can talk to him about it. Check out Adam at Altering Gravity wordpress.com. Tweet at us if you have questions, comments, or concerns for David, and we'll pass them along to him. Again, our Twitter is school number four heathens, and our email address is sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. Amen? Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. Mm-hmm.